Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Elisa Pressman, and I have on today's episode my friend, Dr. Shauna Shapiro. She is such a calming resource to marry mindfulness and parenting. Shauna is a best-selling author, a viral TED Talker, a professor, a clinical psychologist, and an internationally recognized expert in mindfulness and self-compassion. I'm so excited to continue our conversation. This is Shauna's third time on Raising Good Humans podcast. Today, we're talking about really understanding the most important ways we can take action to parent intentionally and have a choice in how we respond to our kids so that we can raise kids who have better self-regulation and feel regulated ourselves. Also, if you haven't already, please sign up for my newsletter, dreliza.bulletin.com. There's free content. There's also a paid subscription, which is hopefully accessible. It's $4.99 a month. But part of that is our ability to interact together as a community, one-on-one, and have extra clips from episodes like this one. So I hope you will join Again, it's DrLisa.Bulletin.com. And of course, if you enjoy this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast with your questions, comments, and of course, subscribe, rate, write a review, anything that helps support getting Raising Good Humans out into the world. Now, if you're able to close your eyes, Shauna is going to start this episode with an opportunity to mindfully connect in the moment and then we're going to have our conversation so let's just take a moment let your eyes close or lower your gaze and just gather your attention so gather your attention here in the body I sometimes like to just wiggle my fingers and toes and even just roll out my shoulders a few times just to anchor my attention in the body. And then just notice that you're breathing. Let the breath soothe you with each inhale. And with each exhale, just letting go of any stress, any tension, oxygenating the body with each in-breath. And then just releasing, letting go with each out breath. 
And just feel how the breath is taking care of you, how you don't need to do anything. You can just rest. And see if you can just rest a little bit back and a little bit down. So often our attention is in our face and the front of our body kind of moving forward into the future. So it's really helpful just to rest back and down. Feel the breath. And relax the body 5% more. And we can't really force relaxation, but we can invite it. So create space for it. And as we begin this conversation together, and for those that are listening, just begin by setting an intention. What's most important? Maybe it's to learn, maybe it's to cultivate more compassion for yourself. Maybe it's just to stay open and curious. For me, my intention is that this time be of benefit. And so as you're ready, taking a deeper breath in and out, and just slowly, gently let your eyes open if they were closed. You can go ahead and stretch your arms above your head and just move your body in any way that feels good. <sighs> okay. <laughs> it feels so good. Whenever people ask about taking mindful moments that are related to meditation, and how that could possibly save time, benefit them in any way. I just think sometimes just actually sitting for a moment and listening to what you just said and breathing and Mm -hmm. finding our intention. It's like my body just, ah, there you go. Feels, Feels why it's important. Yeah. And I think what you just said is really significant, which is it doesn't take a lot of time. It's really just about stopping, right? It's about stopping the kind of frenetic energy and reconnecting with what's really important, what we really value. One of the great qualities in your teaching is that it is relatable to busy, right in the thick of it, parent experiences. (laughs) versus a fantasy of at some point, you know, when you'll have the time to get to the work you want to do for yourself. And these moments are really, I mean, that couldn't have been more than a couple of minutes. Right. That's what's amazing is that time kind of becomes bendy and stretchy when you pause and you kind of shift your consciousness. And so for parents, which I am one, (laughs) it's, it's really important to be able to just pause and breathe and reconnect with what's important because we get so lost and things start going so fast that it only takes a moment to come back to your center. But we almost feel like we can't even stop for that second because, you know, everything will fall apart. You know, I think that's what happens a lot for me when I'm trying to relax as I'm almost like, no, I have to keep my vigilance. And, you know, otherwise this whole kind of house of cards that I've created is going to come apart. And what I realize is actually taking that breath and slowing down is what allows me to step back into life 
with greater clarity and greater purpose. I want to stretch more. I just borrowed stretch from how you were talking about stretching and bending, the bendiness of time. But I want to borrow the word to stretch out talking about breath just very briefly because I I want to get into some other things. But it does come across as quite simple and so simple that sometimes it's hard to believe how important it is in every decision that we're making in a split second in our parenting or in our relationships or in our day-to-day, just any activities whatsoever. And I always think sometimes the answer to every single question starts with take a breath (laughs) and put a real intentional breath. And I'd love to go over that with you because it does sound so simple and hard to believe, except that we have neuroscience to back it up just in case you need that. Yeah. And and I think we do need that. That's as a scientist, I think that's one of the most valuable things we can give people is the understanding of why this is important. So what you just said is, is incredibly valuable, which is the breath regulates our nervous system, right? So even though we think it's so simple, oh, I just take a breath, it's actually regulating our autonomic nervous system. And this is what helps us regulate our emotions. This is what helps regulate our reactivity. And I actually think one of the most important pieces of parenting, but really of our human evolution, is for people to learn how to regulate their nervous system, to Mm -hmm. learn how to regulate their emotions so that we're not living out of this automatic reactivity. And so the breath is this powerful practice that we can weave into any moment of our life that literally down regulates the amygdala circuits, which are kind of the core of our emotions and of our reactivity and helps put us back in choice. And it really helps this pause, you know, this, this moment of pause is one of the most valuable tools we have as parents and we don't use it. You know, Viktor Frankl, who's one of my heroes, he says, between the stimulus and response, there is this space, this pause. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And so it's really this pause that puts us back in choice. Instead of just reacting out of our own conditioning or our habit patterns, we actually can choose a new pathway. And in doing so, we're also modeling self-regulation for our children. And so it's a win-win for everyone. And that choice is the part that I think gives it so much power. The choice of how we're going to respond as parents or as anybody, as you said, this is not isolated to parents. (laughs) I just try to frame it that way for this particular audience, but I think it's absolutely important for us as parents, but also for our children to see exactly. it modeled and for us to teach them. This is a practice. This is a skill that we can train, right? We can train this equanimity or this balance or this kind of pause. And if we can train this to our kids, I mean, there's decades of research showing that impulse control in children predicts every single life outcome you can imagine from how much they earn to if they're going to stay married to how happy and healthy they're going to be. So learning this ability to regulate our emotions and our nervous system, I think is one of the most important things we can teach our children. And it starts at birth and before birth and goes on through 
throughout our lifetime. So it's a, I agree with you. And in the early years, we're modeling and they're feeling our nervous system and co-regulating. And with your teenagers, I mean, if you can find that pause before you make any, (laughs) have any reaction, you have won parenting teenagers. <laughs> you win. Yes. I, I now have four teenagers. Right. <laughs> I am like learning this. How much very, breathing very are you doing? <laughs> Pardon? Yeah. Lots of, lots of breathing, lots of very deep audible breaths. <laughs> but I do think something you said that really sparked something for me is, you know, these early years, they're so impressionable and what we model, it's, they're just absorbing. I mean, neuroplasticity, it's just happening. Like after age 25, you actually have to work to engage neuroplasticity. It's actually very intentional and takes kind of a specific protocol to get these neural pathways to change in your brain, to really change the brain and the nervous system. But before age 25, it's just, you're getting imprinted and you're just learning. And so if we could teach children these skills, they would be their automatic habit patterns, that their automatic habit would be to take a deep breath when they feel scared, right? Or to take a deep breath instead of yelling. And this is something that we can hardwire into our children. As parents, it actually takes a bit more work, to be honest. Now I'm going to take a little break so that I can tell you about my sponsors. I used to go through disposable paper towels a lot, cleaning up spills, wiping down counters, sanitizing everything, wiping my hands. Going through rolls of paper towels makes me feel incredibly guilty. And yet I didn't really have a great solution. So when I got Papaya's reusable paper towels, I was very excited. And what caught my attention is that one papaya paper towel replaces, get this, 17 rolls of disposable paper towels, not 17 sheets, 17 rolls. That is so awesome. And for example, when I knocked over my entire cup of coffee this morning, instead of taking me half a roll of paper towels to clean it up, I grabbed my papaya paper towel and soaked up half the spill in one wipe, squeezed it into the sink soaked up the rest of it in another wipe. It is truly like absorbent magic. I'm definitely geeking out on a paper towel conversation, but they're really good. You can use them to clean, rinse them out in the sink and hang them back up to dry. That's it. It's so easy. They're on the back of my backsplash right next to my sink. And they are also really soft and natural. So you can use them when you're wiping up little humans too. They're so convenient. I'm super into this. They are also dishwasher safe because I like to put them in the dishwasher for a deeper clean, especially depending on what I've been using them for. So you don't have to buy bulky disposable paper towels anymore. You don't have to spend money on it. You don't have to create landfill. It's 100% compostable. After a few months, you can compost them and start a new one. Or If you're not going to do that, at least you know how many paper towels you did not go through. And you really did not know you need this until you try it, but use the code HUMANS. Get 20% off your first order at papayareusables.com. That's P-A-P-A-Y-A-R-E-U-S-A-B-L-E-S.com. Just go into my show notes and you can click on the link and put in the code HUMANS, get 20% off and tell me this is not a phenomenal invention. 
Well, spring is here. And yet it feels a little bit like fake spring for some people because it's just that time of year. It's hard to figure out how to dress because the weather is a little bit unpredictable. So what am I getting at? Well, when every day is different and the weather can change at the drop of the hat, there's Ferity to make it easier. Ferity makes perfect clothes for all seasons. Ferity is a family-run brand making high-quality, timeless clothing with modern design and functionality, and it's really well-priced. Great shirts, great men's clothing if you have any men that you want to get presents for. It's got effortless style that you want anytime you go digging into your closet. Just a great shirt, easy dress to throw on. You definitely will find something that's just for you at Faraday. And Faraday is so confident in the quality of their stuff that they have a lifetime guarantee of quality. They actually will replace or fix your clothes forever, no matter what. What? And right now, Faraday is giving all Raising Good Humans listeners 20% off. So head to FaradayBrand.com and use the code HUMANS at checkout to snag 20% off all your new spring staples. That's code HUMANS at Faraday. F-A-H-E-R-T-Y brand.com for 20% off. So let's say you know that this is your Achilles heel (laughs) and you're trying to focus on your kid's self-regulation. I think what you just said clarifies, it starts with us. Mm -hmm. They're going to be doing this work, but they need to see us doing it. So what can we do? What are a few things that we can do every day in a realistic way to help get that practice going? Because it is, as you said, so much harder once we're already wired. Exactly. So so the first thing is to know this is a practice. It's not about perfect. So I always start with this kind of idea of compassion for ourselves, that whenever we're engaging in a new learning, it's really important to know that it's not going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes and to really bring this sense of compassion, kindness, and real faith in our, in our intention. So when I start working with someone, the first thing we do is we set our intention, right? Why do you want to pause? Why do you want to breathe more? Why do you want to be less reactive? And they can connect in with, well, one, I want to be a better parent. Two, I want to model this for my children. You know, three, I really want to choose my responses instead of creating harm out of this reactivity. So we, we connect with like, our good hearts, right? The purity of our intention. And then the second step is to set a really concrete and small goal. So usually people kind of, their problem is they set too large a goal. So I say to set ridiculously unambitious goals, right? Just just don't be ambitious. It's something you can do. And, And then to reward yourself when you're able to do it. So And when I say reward yourself, the most effective way to reward yourself is through what's called positive internal self-talk, which is basically just being on your own team. So every time that you pause and take a breath to say, great job, or you did it, or way to remember. And what happens when we speak to ourselves in this way is so fascinating. We release dopamine and dopamine turns on both the learning and motivation centers of the brain. So it actually helps us learn the new skill and it motivates us to keep doing it. And so what I recommend is, so you set your intention, you set a small goal, you reward yourself. And in terms of the actual practice, in terms of goals, you know, I think one thing to do is write it down. 
to say, you know, when I get upset, I'm going to take one deep breath or three deep breaths. I even find sometimes <laughs> three doesn't sound like a lot, but sometimes in the moment it like a feels lot. like too long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just say one deep breath. If I can just catch myself before I say a word and take one deep breath, I'm like, way to go, Shauna. You did a great job. <laughs> so, but to write it down because we're 40% more likely to remember something when we write it down. So we, we write down our goal. And then I usually recommend that people have a practice they do every day and then something they do during the stressor. So it's kind of hard when you're in the middle of like a very stressful situation to pull out a practice that you've never done. Does that make sense? So you want to be practicing it so you're good at it. And so usually what I have people start off doing is just to take three to five minutes each morning or each evening, whichever works better, depending on if you're a morning or night person, but all of us have at least three minutes where just to set a timer and just to practice our breathing. And there's two types of breathing that I find incredibly helpful. The first one is where you do a double inhale through your nose and then a long sigh exhale. Ah, Good. And this actually regulates the nervous system faster than any other style of breathing. This is the most effective way to calm yourself down is this. Now that one is a little more awkward to do in public. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm also aware of like what works and what doesn't. So that breath I, you know, I'll do sometimes when I'm alone and I need to calm myself down. The other breath that's very, very helpful is just to breathe in to a count of five and then out to a count of five. And that's just a balancing breath that balances the oxygen, the release of carbon dioxide. And so you can do either of those breaths for three minutes in the morning or the evening, and then just write down your commitment that every time I'm about to yell or snap or become impatient or send an email or whatever it is that I'm going to breathe. And then when you do do it, congratulate yourself. Mm-hmm. And I know this was kind of a lot of information for such a simple practice, but it really does come down to the science. And if you follow these basic protocols, you'll be more successful. I think it's important to stretch out the science because it does seem so simple, but when things seem too simple, it's easy to skip over them because you think it can't make that much of a difference. Exactly. Exactly. And so for people to know, this is good for me to even say that to yourself. Great job. This is good for you. This is helping you be a more patient mother or whatever, you know, it is. So, yeah. And again, so highly linked with developing self-regulation in our kids. And you mentioned writing things down. So I just want to bring up something that may be of use, wonderful use is you have a journal coming out. Yes. I'm very excited about it. And truthfully, I wrote it because, you know, my last book, while it reached a lot of people and I think had some wonderful ideas and science and story. Wonderful. Focus wasn't on practice. And what I've realized is that the key to change and transformation is repeated practice. This is what the science shows. This is really the heart of neuroplasticity is that it's through repeated practice that we're able to transform our brain and our nervous system. And so this journal basically takes you on a three-month journey and there's only five minutes a day. So it's really geared towards people who don't have a lot of time, but there's five minutes a day and each day is a practice that will help 
regulate your nervous system and also help you cultivate certain qualities of patience or joy or forgiveness or compassion. And then once a week, there's a time for a deeper dive where there's a longer practice. But throughout the entire journal, and the reason I created the journal is so that people can write. There's prompts for free writing. There's, you know, art and poetry. And it's really to engage all the different dimensions of our mind so that we can use them to transform. So what are two examples? Because I think, you know, just to follow through on some of these intentions, it's really helpful to have a plan. Yes. And so will you give us a couple of nuggets that help illustrate kind of a daily, a once in a while and a deeper practice? Yes. So one of the most important things to know is that the few first minutes of your morning are incredibly valuable, that your brain is in an alpha theta state, which means it's highly suggestible and highly trainable. And so these first parts of the morning, it's really important to kind of, instead of jumping on your phone or looking at the news or looking at social media, to really set your intention, to take some breaths, to really kind of set the compass for the day, right? To orient your heart in the right direction. And so there's a morning practice every single morning, again, just taking a couple minutes um, just to kind of anchor you. And then in the evening, the evening is also an incredibly important time. What research shows is that your mood in the evening before you go to bed is the most significant predictor of your health. It even predicts the length of your telomeres and the health of your mitochondria, which are the body's energy battery, really. The length of your telomeres predicts how long you're going to live. So these are huge biological markers. And so protecting your mood right before you go to bed is very important. And again, this is when people are often on their phones or looking at social media. They're not there. They're tired and they're not really being intentional. And so there's an evening practice every evening to kind of help you drift into sleep. And, you know, I worked at the Stanford Insomnia Clinic for a long time and I've done a lot of research in sleep. And so these practices are really geared for sleep and everything in in the journal is science-based. And so I'm trying to bring what are the best practices to kind of help us be our best selves and live our best lives? Um, In terms of a deep dive, so once a week, I figured it's hard to do these every day, but once a week, there's an invitation to go a little deeper. And so, for example, one of them is forgiveness. And so you learn about the science of forgiveness just in one page, just kind of simple summary of the science. And then you learn a forgiveness practice, which you can do for 10 to 20 minutes instead of just the few minutes that we do during the weekdays. Another example would be the practice of self-compassion, the science behind it, and then the three steps of self-compassion. So you can really, you know, it's, it's easy to say, be kind to yourself, but it's not so easy to do. And so to really kind of anchor people in the practice and the steps to cultivating self-compassion. I'm struck by imagining the parents of younger kids for whom bedtime is really stressful at the child's bedtime, not necessarily their bedtime. Yeah. Unless it's the same. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't want anybody to panic that their child's distress at bedtime is going to ruin their long-term health because (laughs) for some kids, the distress at bedtime is a cycle of distress 
in the child causes distress in the parent and it doesn't, nobody regulates. And then every night at bedtime is kind of a fight. So I wonder if it would be helpful to, and I think the larger answer is always going to be back to the breath and regulating your own experience, even when you know your child is distressed. But I wonder if there's something very specific in the practice for those moments, and then we can get back to our own time before bed. Yeah. So first of all, what I want to say is it's absolutely natural for there to be distress in the child at bedtime, and this is not going to ruin their long-term health. So do not worry. And it's a time to pay attention to. As parents, we know that. That's why we take care of these bedtime routines with our children. So I think the most important thing, because, you know, when our children are tired, their nervous systems aren't as well regulated. So the most important thing is for us as parents to stay regulated and to give them a safe place to kind of bump up against, but to not push back, right? So that when a a young child is kind of crying or upset, that the parent stays present, stays loving, still sets very clear boundaries, right? In my earlier book that I wrote with Dr. Chris White, we talk about this kind of loving hierarchy where the parent is the parent and we set the rules and we create the safety, but we always stay in this place of love that we're not punishing. And so I think it's okay for the child to be distressed about bedtime, but the parent lets them know that's okay. It's even okay to be upset at bedtime. And this is still the routine we're going to go through. And then the other thing is, you know, choosing the songs that you sing to your children at bedtime, choosing the books that you read, creating this environment of safety, of health, and really intentionally bringing that. And I think, you know, one book that I'm working on right now, it won't come out for another year, but is Good Morning, I Love You (laughs) for children, right? And this idea of how do we teach compassion and putting our hands on our hearts and even letting children know when you just put your hand on your heart, it releases oxytocin, which is the safety and love hormone. And so as they're having a hard time at bedtime, just to both put your hands on your heart and just know, even though it's hard right now, this is releasing this beautiful medicine into my body. And we're going to talk next year about Good Morning, I Love You, the kids book version, because I am so excited about that. And you know that I've done that with my children for years and years. I know, I love it. My favorite, I have to say my favorite, you know, notes and letters and videos that I get from people are when they, they film their children doing the good morning. I love you practice. And all of them, one, one family, they all did it together. And they say, this is what we do on our way to school every day. (laughs) So that, because the kids used to cry the whole time on the car and now they kind of say, good morning, I love you. And they say it to everything they pass in the car, you know, to the school bus and to the plants and to the flowers. And I just, I love the way people have been creative with the practice. And just in case you don't know this already, and this is the first time you've heard Shauna talk about Good Morning, I Love You. I mean, it really goes back to that first moment in the morning. Mm-hmm. But do you want to just briefly? Yeah. Yeah. So, it? so so this is a practice that has been the most powerful in my life. And I gave a TED Talk five years ago where I talked about this practice and Much to my surprise, this talk went viral and it led to a book and now this new journal, Good Morning, I Love You. And I think the reason it's been so well-received is because this idea of self-love is so 
uncomfortable and awkward and we don't like to talk about, but it's so universal that all of us really yearn for feeling more at peace in ourselves. And so this practice for me, I learned when I was going through a very difficult divorce and I would wake up every morning kind of ashamed and and afraid and anxious and how was I going to survive and what was going to happen to our son. And one of my teachers said, you know, instead of practicing anxiety and fear, why don't you start a practice of self-compassion and kindness? And she suggested that I say, I love you every single day. And I just thought that was impossible. I was like, no way. (laughs) I love you just sounded so, it just sounded so contrived. And truthfully, I didn't love myself in that moment. I was really angry and frustrated and upset. And so she said, well, how about if you just say good morning, Shada, when you wake up, like just start to bring a little bit of kindness into your life. And so I did. And the next morning I woke up, put my hand on my heart, which remember releases oxytocin and just said, good morning, Shauna. And it was surprisingly nice, right? Instead of all the worries and the fears, I just greeted myself with kindness. And as that practice continued, it really deepened. And I started noticing I was like, there'd be a flash of kindness during the day and a little less judgment. And a few months later, I was at one of my favorite places in the world, which is called Esalen Institute in Big Sur, (laughs) California. And it was my birthday and it was my first birthday alone, probably in my life. My son was with his father at a long planned family reunion. And so I was all by myself and I woke up and I went down to these mineral hot springs and the sun was about to rise. And I put my hand on my heart to do my good morning Shauna practice. And all of a sudden this image of my grandmother, my Nana came to me. And before I knew it, I said, good morning. I love you, Shauna. Happy birthday. And it was as if this dam around my heart burst and this love came pouring in, you know, my grandmother's love and my mother's love and even my own self-love. And, you know, I wish I could say every single day since then is in this bubble of self-love and that is absolutely (laughs) not true. So don't expect it. But what's been radical really is, is that this idea of self-love became possible that even though it still felt a little awkward or still is a little, it, that it was, it was there. And this, this ability to love myself while not every single day and not perfectly had been established. Mm. And yeah, and it's been a practice I've been doing ever since and have shared with anyone who will listen. I listened, (laughs) (laughs) you know, this, my kids, when I first brought it up to them, made fun of me, but did it like kind of eyes rolling to entertain their mother, but it was a source of connection for us and a giggle in the morning instead of, you know, dragging them out of bed. And so it even started the day off for us in just a lighter way. And it is a hard thing to do without feeling a little goofy in the beginning. And it's just one of those things that it doesn't really matter. It's not supposed to feel a particular way, but it really is effective and so quick. (laughs) Not that I'm looking for all quick fixes, but on a short podcast, it's so nice to have some proper nuggets. Absolutely. And it's something that's so simple to do with your children. You know, it, it comes so naturally, right? When I would say, good morning, I love you to my son, I could feel all the love and all the ease. And it was, it's a wonderful thing to practice back and forth. And then to our, our children just start to, to feel like that's natural to be on your own team, right? It's natural to support yourself. 
Whereas as adults, so often it becomes the most unnatural thing. And in fact, we become our worst enemies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm very into smiling. I love going to the dentist. I'm actually a person who loves going to the dentist. I love getting my teeth cleaned. I love having pearly whites, but I do not like the feeling of putting chemicals into my body. And I don't like the feeling of the usual process of teeth whitening. However, we know that 98% of oral bacteria is good for us, essential for our oral health, and that there's a lot of chemicals in some nonsense products that remove these good bacteria. So get Lumino toothpaste mouthwash and whitening that are totally new and a totally different approach for improving oral health. They use purposeful and uncompromising ingredients that you will feel comfortable using on children and grownups sea salt, aloe, and coconut oil to clean and brighten your smile. And everything they make is certified non-toxic. No harsh chemicals, no bleaches in any of Lumino's products. And the whitening only takes 30 minutes to apply and brightens your smile with no sensitivity. So find Lumino on amazon.com and get $7 off today. That's L-U-M-I-N-E-U-X. Remember it's spelled with an X so you can X out harm. Lumino dedicated to illuminating better ideas in oral care. Everybody knows that I'm a big fan of play and child-directed play and engaging in curiosity and exploration and also practical living. And so KiwiCo has done something very nice to parents because KiwiCo is taking activities, putting them in a box, keeping them open-ended enough that kids can be exploring on their own and also taking the work away from you. Right now, they're doing some fun stuff for spring. Why do flowers bloom? How do caterpillars turn into butterflies? Why is this day longer? Why is it warmer now? There are so many good questions that come up in the spring and KiwiCo delivers monthly science and art projects that celebrate a child's natural curiosity especially right now when lots of vacations are happening, school's going to be out soon, there's warm weather in the air and lots of opportunities for discovery. Use KiwiCo's delivery, enriching hands-on experiences to spark curiosity and inspire creativity when you just don't have the energy to do it yourself. So you can do something as simple as a project to explore the transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly. Your child can get super cool hands-on art projects delivered to their door every month. So exciting to see this arrival in the mail. The day the box arrives is just so much fun and the high quality materials are great too. And you can cultivate your child's natural curiosity with new hands-on projects every month. And you can also learn different ways to be creative and keep your child busy and challenged instead of plunking them in front of the TV when you just don't have the energy to come up with anything. KiwiCo will do that legwork for you so you can spend quality time tackling projects together. Step into spring and celebrate the season of discovery with a KiwiCo subscription. Get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code HUMANS at KiwiCo.com. That's 30% off your first month at kiwico.com, promo code HUMANS. So let's go back to ourselves. 
<laughs> Can you help explain and distinguish between the idea of self-compassion and letting yourself off the hook all the time? Because I think that gets mm-hmm. confused and then criticized when they're two very different things. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought this up. And I have to say, every time that I talk about self-compassion, people kind of roll their eyes at first and they don't really know that they're doing it. They're not trying to be rude to me. They're just, (laughs) they're kind of like, I don't think she hears me. I actually really want to change. I want to become a more patient mother or less reactive. And if I'm self-compassionate, I'm just going to keep doing the same old thing. Mm -hmm. And, and I hear that from people who are trying to lose weight or people who are trying to start an exercise program where they're like, I can't, if I'm compassionate with myself, I'm just going to become a couch potato. And so what I want you to know is that science shows the exact opposite. And the research is so robust and so surprising that people who are trying to lose weight, when you put them in two different groups and in one group, you teach them self-compassion, they are much more effective at staying to a healthy diet and on exercise program. When you are inviting people to learn new healthy behaviors, right? Or to go to the doctor more for mammogram checkups or something. People who score higher in self-compassion are more likely to engage in healthy behaviors. That makes sense. When you care about yourself, you take care of yourself. You actually don't sit on the couch and eat Oreo cookies all day long when you love yourself because you're like, this isn't good for you. And one of the most important things I get, especially from parents is they say, well, you know, I don't really deserve my own compassion or there's so many other people that deserve it. And they feel like it's a little bit selfish. What the research shows, and this was a fascinating study just published a couple of years ago, showed that when you interviewed the spouses and friends of people who score high on self-compassion, they're rated as higher in compassion for others, in greater generosity, in greater support than those who score lower on self-compassion. So actually learning how to treat yourself with kindness makes you better able to take care of others. It's far from being selfish. It's one of the most, I think, generous things you can do for your family is to learn how to be kind to yourself. So I wouldn't mind stretching this out to talk about what happens if you forget about your brain and what's happening in your brain and you forget about self-compassion. Are you even open to taking care of others? Mm. I think that self-compassion is kind of, I call it the secret sauce. (laughs) It's the secret sauce to caring for others, to um, learning, actually, to motivation and to change. I think it's one of the most needed practices and skills of our time. I think right now we've We've lost the art of civil discourse. We've lost the art of listening. We've lost the art of empathy, of being able to take other people's perspectives. And a lot of times it's because we're kind of protecting our own self. When we are able to be kind and be on our own team, we have much more capacity to hear other people because we're not so afraid. We still know I'm going to always protect myself. I'm I'm always on my own team, but I can hear you. I can listen with you. I can be present with you. People who are more self-compassionate, they score higher in resilience. They have more grit, more perseverance because they're not really afraid to fail because failure is just part of learning, right? When you fail and you're high in self-compassion, you are like, oh, nice try. Let's keep going. When you fail and you are hard on yourself and judgmental, you you break yourself down, you beat yourself down. And what's interesting 
is when you shame and beat yourself up, right? It actually doesn't help you learn from your mistakes. It doesn't help you improve. It actually shuts down the learning centers of the brain and keeps you stuck repeating the same old habits. So what's really powerful about self-compassion is that it both bathes your system in oxytocin, which I've talked about, this kind of calms you and soothes you, but also in dopamine, which as I've said, turns on the learning and motivation centers. So, you know, I often hear people, for example, when you're trying to rally people to support others or take action in the community, there does seem to be a this time in the world where there's a lot of like screaming at each other from other sides and within echo chambers. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's so against what neuroscience tells us is going to shift how anybody thinks or have has right. any curiosity or compassion. And I'm like, why, why can't we talk about the psychology of that? <laughs> because otherwise, you know, I see us not really getting anywhere. And I think it all comes back to this the science of our brains and what happens in terms of learning. Just like you said, when you're getting screamed at about anything or you're unable to feel safe, you can't really take in another person's experience. Exactly. Exactly. And this is so important for parenting. I mean, when we try to teach our children something and we're yelling at them or we're shaming them for, you know, how could you step into the street like that? It's just locking up their brains. Their their learning centers are off. They are not learning anything. And so the most important thing I believe with children, with teenagers, with any human being is that we first pause, we regulate our own nervous system, and then we listen. We can't teach anyone anything when they still want to tell us something. And so the most important thing first is just to listen and understand. And as a clinical psychologist, this is what I teach my graduate students is for the first part of therapy, we just reflect back what we hear. I see you. I understand you. This is what you're saying. So that someone feels understood and heard. And when that happens, it's not just psychological. It's not just like, Ooh, I feel good. Then it actually allows their nervous system to calm down. It allows their learning centers of the brain to turn on. And then you can actually share information that could be helpful. The same is true of children. And so I think it's really important that we understand the science of learning before we try to kind of force our children to learn things. Yeah. So examples, if you find yourself yelling at your kid because they should know better by now, it doesn't actually, if every time you're trying to teach something in the context of everybody's in that distressed state, it's not sinking in. Exactly. Exactly. And what's interesting is, so they they just published a paper, I'll have to look up and I'll send you the link to it, but it's called Hot and Cool Executive Functioning. And what's interesting- is that yes, okay. Palazzo and Stephanie Carlson? Yes, yes. Yeah. So what I found fascinating is you can learn a skill when you're in your cool executive functioning and things aren't all revved up, but it's really hard to translate it to when things get hot, right? And so I think that as parents, we need to realize just like within ourselves that even though we know better, sometimes we can't always do better. And that's where this self-compassion comes in. Again, not letting ourselves off the hook, saying, darn it, I really wish that I had done this differently. And I think to model that for our children, 
to go back and repair without shame is so important. And yeah, you're right. I mean, anybody, any adult could really understand the cool learning and then not translating into those hot moments because there's <laughs> like, done it. we all know you, you shouldn't smoke. You shouldn't eat excessive. You shouldn't have corn syrup. You shouldn't, I'm just trying to think of like, you should exercise X number of minutes per day. Like there are so many things that we know are better for our health that we plan on doing. And then we don't do because we ha- are tempted in the heat of the moment. And right. it's no different. It's just easier to, I just thinking of like, all those public health ads that oh, that didn't really but reduce. But are going about it in the absolute backwards way. Right. I mean, the whole the ads with obesity they they actually they're scaring people and they showed that obesity increased. That that that's not actually how we learn. Exactly. I mean, they, they did this one study and they put a piece of chocolate cake in front of people. This beautiful, delicious chocolate cake, and there was three groups. And one of the groups they said, you know, think how bad you're going to feel if you eat this, like feel the shame God. and the like, you know, and just how terrible. And another group said, you know, sometimes people eat chocolate cake. Sometimes they don't, you know, you still have a lot of worth as a person, be kind to yourself, whatever decision you make, like it was just kind of kind. And then the last group was a control group. And what they found is that 90% of the people in the shame group ate the cake. Of course. And, of course. and these are all people who are trying not to eat sugar, by the way, because it's, you know, if you're, if you're choosing to eat cake, no problem, but and in the self-compassion group, only 35% did. And it was just such a like a basic study showing that there's a better way to engage people in learning and it's not shame. Yeah, no, I think that is a great illustration of just how we well-meaning adults get this off with other adults. So, you know, it's something to really think about as we're framing things for kids. And when you have teenagers, yeah the scare tactics don't necessarily work for that same reason. Right. And it doesn't mean we don't have strong boundaries. Absolutely. Actually, that's going to be my, that was going to be my next question for you is, so how can we distinguish between setting up guardrails and Mm -hmm. addressing with self-compassion and compassion and curiosity toward our children that we're still holding those guardrails? Right. I think that's one of the most important kind of dialectics of parenting Mm -hmm. is learning how to kind of weave together this absolute strength and safety with, with your love and compassion. And we don't hit it perfectly, right? You, maybe your voice has an edge of anger in it as you're also setting the rule that we're, 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 but we're trying as best we can to bring this sense of balance and stability and a regulated nervous system when we set boundaries, when we create rules, that it's very clear this is for love. This is because I love you. And I think one of the most important things that I I wanted to touch on related to this is the difference between empathy and compassion. Yes. I love this, please. (laughs) Yes. So this, this, I was thinking about this in the workbook, it's in the journal a piece on, on the difference between empathy and compassion, because as parents, we're always told like be empathic and understand what your kids are saying. And this is of course so important, but empathy comes pretty naturally to us as parents. You know, we all have these mirror neurons and you see your kid like, you know, fall and hurt their knee. Like all of a sudden (laughs) the pain centers of your brain are lit lit up, right? You, You can feel their pain very, very easily. And what happens when we feel our children's pain is we sometimes get overwhelmed by their pain. 
right? Our pain centers, you know, I, I remember when my son didn't get invited to a birthday party and everyone else did. And literally like my nervous system was hijacked <laughs> with, with pain and with anger and all those different mm-hmm. feelings. But, and so one of the things that, that has been so helpful for me as a therapist and also as a mother is the difference between empathy and compassion. So empathy is when you just feel someone's distress, your, your neurons light up and you, you feel their pain. You can't sustain that. It's not healthy. What's interesting is compassion is actually the desire to help them, the desire to care for and support them. And what research out of University of Switzerland found just a few years ago, actually, is that when someone feels compassion in the face of someone else's suffering, the reward centers of their brain light up, the positive neural circuits light up. So when we feel empathy, our pain centers light up. When we feel compassion, these positive centers light up. So the key, and this is not simple, but I'll explain to you how to do it. But the key is to use your empathy as a gateway to compassion. So when you see your child hurting, first step is, of course, to feel that pain because that's how we know they're in pain. We have to know they're in pain first. So those mirror neurons are helpful. But then instead of staying with the pain and creating more drama around it, we shift to how much we love our child, how much we care, and how much we want to support them. And we stay in this compassion mode. And it's really from here that we have the greatest access to our wisdom, our clarity, right? Our prefrontal cortex is still on board. Whereas when we get overwhelmed with empathy to stress, it becomes disconnected. And so for me, this has been one of the most helpful things that when one of our children is, you know, in distress or is really facing a challenge to really kind of drop beneath the pain and to feel how much I care and my desire to help. And it's like, you're putting on this protective suit where you can then go into the challenge in a different way. I, you know, I I love the image of a protective suit. And I think that's, that is such a challenge and the shift, you know, using empathy for connection and then as a gateway to compassion is I think the thing that gets lost sometimes in translation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. is so powerful, especially for parents right now who are so burnt out yeah, and so identifying with their children's experience and with the world's experience. Exactly. I mean, I and so right and now, now it's even more compounded. Right. I mean, the, 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 we cannot, you know, escape the kind of current world state of affairs. And I think all of us can feel the impact in our nervous system. And all of us are feeling the pain that, you know, people in other parts of the world are facing. And this is where this empathy kind of shifting it into compassion for me has been so important because truthfully, you know, with everything happening in the Ukraine, I got really those first few days, I was just completely overwhelmed. I couldn't, I, it hasn't happened to me in a very long time where I really couldn't function. And then you can't be of service, which is what you want ultimately what you're looking to do. Right. And so for me, it was learning how to, to kind of drop beneath the pain and the fear and to feel my own good heart and to feel my dedication to serving and to then engage that and kind of first begin without even taking action. Really first step was first to acknowledge my own pain and send compassion to myself. And then just to start to send that compassion out into the world. Like 
may the suffering pass, may there be peace, may there be ease. And as I started kind of sending out my compassion, I started to calm myself down so that I could actually then read the data, look at real news sources and and figure out how to best respond and support. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's come up so much lately and it's a really important distinction. Absolutely. And it feels a bit like emotional alchemy. Like it really is when you practice, it's this incredible way that you're able to shift the negative into positive, but our brains were built to do this. And over and over again, we can transform suffering into compassion and compassion really is this healing, healthy, positive emotion in the body. You mentioned suffering. So I, I wanted to quickly, quickly, everything is so quick, but it's not because I know we have to go soon. So could you talk through the equation pain times resistance equals suffering and how to counteract that? Yes, uh, absolutely. And we have all the time in the world (laughs) and I'll do it briefly. So (laughs) suffering is from a mindfulness lens, suffering is optional, whereas pain is inevitable. There's always going to be pain in this world. And we have seen that over the last couple of years, (laughs) things just keep happening. So pain is part of life. However much we resist the pain, no, this can't be happening or, you know, just where we kind of start to beat our heads up against a wall. What we're doing is we're actually magnifying the pain and increasing our suffering. And so the idea is to not resist the pain. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't fight, right? It doesn't mean that we don't fight social injustice, that we don't stand by our values. What it means is that we don't hate, right? So compassion, I love this quote from Sharon Salzberg. She says, compassion doesn't mean we don't fight. It means we don't hate. And so what this resistance, this resistance is where we're not accepting what is. And so the first step of mindfulness is really to see clearly and accept what is true, not because we like it, but because it's already happening. And once we're able to see it clearly, then we can choose our response. So pain is going to be part of life. And our goal is to be able to meet it with clarity and compassion instead of resistance. And what this does is it decreases our suffering, which is the only thing we actually have some control over. And how could you translate that if you, let's say your teenager comes home experiencing pain, our empathetic selves may connect and get right deep into the feels, but we need to then put our protective coat on so that Mm -hmm. we can be there and be compassionate. How can we help another person in our lives, particularly a young person, move Mm -hmm. through that pain without magnifying it to suffering? Yeah. Well, let's just take something really simple. We're saying we're talking about pain. So we can even take physical pain. So if your child comes home and they have a headache and they say, this is the worst time to have a headache. I have, you know, my swim meet tomorrow and I'm going to do terribly and I have homework tonight. And you can help them start to differentiate the pain of the headache from all this kind of resistance, which is all the fears about the future and all the fighting against the headache. And so you can start to say, okay, the headache, let's just say that's on a scale of one to 10 is a six, right? Or a seven. But when we start worrying about what's going to happen with the swimmy or the homework, 
we multiply the pain times our resistance. So let's say it's a six times 10, all of a sudden we have a 600 unit headache, right? And so what we want to do is to help them just be with the pain without adding to it. And that's usually kind of what we often do is like, we don't get invited to the birthday party. So we're with the pain of rejection and then we add to it. I'm never going to get invited. No one likes me. Okay. So what is the one thing you want people to know? I think the most important thing is to realize that change is possible, that this is what science and neuroscience teach us is that it's never too late that we can begin again in any moment so that whatever mistakes you've made or whatever your current circumstances, it's never too late to change, to literally re-architect the very structure of our brain. And so what I want people to know is you can begin again. And right now is the perfect time. So I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with you and Looking forward to more. Always. I am so grateful. And may I be so grateful for you to do a closing meditation? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So take a moment and we've covered a lot of material, a lot of information. So just take a moment to let your eyes close and just let it sink in and let it kind of sink into the body. I think so often we think more information is better. But actually, what's better is actually digesting and absorbing the nutrients of the information we've received. So just take a moment to kind of let it all sink into the body. And then just choosing kind of one key takeaway, one thing you want to remember and bring with you. And it could be that shame shuts down the learning centers of the brain. Or it could be the power of just placing your hand on your heart and releasing oxytocin or practicing good morning, I love you with your children. So just kind of let everything we've talked about encode in your long-term memory. And trusting that the seeds that we've planted will continue to grow. As you're ready, you can let some light back in through the eyes. If they were closed, you can go ahead and move the body. Good job. Okay. I love you. (laughs) I love you too. Thank you for doing this. Mm, You're so welcome. It was such a joy. For more of my conversation with Dr. Shauna Shapiro, please go to draliza.bulletin.com to my premium subscription where I will have more opportunities to share this work with you.